I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. So... I'd like to welcome to the Property Funder podcast, Adam Stiles. Um, okay, so um, to imitate Scylla Black, what's what's your name, number three, and where do you come from? Uh, and also, what's your line of business? And um, perhaps you want to tell us the name of your business and what it does. Sure. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me on. It's uh, quite an honour to be here. So thank you very much. Uh, my name is Adam Stiles, as you uh, very kindly introduced me. Uh, and I run two businesses, which are Helix Structured Finance and Helix Financial Partners. Helix Financial Partners is a regulated business where we deal with uh, protection, uh, uh, residential mortgages and buy-to-let mortgages, and Helix Structured Finance, which deals in uh, development, bridging and commercial finance. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> and and um, which of these two children of yours is your favourite? Oh, uh, well, look, I, I've always enjoyed the structured side more. Uh, my business partner uh, is very much on the uh, the regulated side 99% of the time. Uh, but in my career, I've been very lucky to be to have exposure to both. So uh, but my interest lies more on the structured side that just every deal is different, whereas Resi and buy to let it's, you know, much for muchness in most circumstances. Would would you describe it as a bit more standardised and a bit more formulaic? Uh, it either 100%. fits into a box or it doesn't. Yeah, no, I, you do get obviously challenges in in lots of cases, uh, but it tends to be fairly granular. Whereas the the structured side, you know, as as you well know from your background, most developments are quite different. There's always something, some d- different angle to it. Uh, bridging as well that, that becomes in various weird and wonderful guises um yeah I, I just find that side more interesting because there's more complexities to it i i enjoy the i enjoy the challenges i enjoy the i just enjoy complex deals speaking of complex and challenging deals what would you say is your most difficult and most challenging deal that you've successfully completed? I mean, I'm sure you've seen some very challenging cases that um, ne- never went anywhere. Well, there's one that springs to mind, which uh, was a guy who had, I think, around seven or eight missed mortgage payments on quite a large buy-to-let portfolio. 
and we were incorporating it and raising money uh, and the added complexity of that was uh, when the bank did due diligence on him he was accused of quite a serious crime um, but never convicted and it wasn't anything fraudulent or finance related but uh, we had to I mean it was weird they basically said if you can satisfy us that he didn't he didn't do what he's you know accused of doing um then we'll consider it so there were various challenges aside from the missed mortgage payments but um we found some uh, evidence on well I, I, evidence online of what was being accused which threw into light very questionable circumstances of why he was accused in the first place so to cut a long story short we got the deal through but it was it just every turn there was an issue uh, but we managed to get through there was also things like uh, the managing agent of one of his uh, set of uh, properties was subletting it without the landlord knowing so he'd put up these the agent had put up some stud walls and had increased the number of bedrooms uh, illegally uh, to gain extra rent without the landlord knowing. So there was all this that unraveled. So it was, it, it had many highs and lows, and that was one of the most challenging I've had to deal with on the structured side. Well, the, 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 that there's a lot to pick through there, isn't there? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you could say so. <laughs> um, so it, which uh, which TV detective? or movie detective would you have likened yourself to in in that process were you Columbo. I, I mean that was what was coming to mind and 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 how did you deal with that did you did the did the line just one more just one more question well I think that ever, was mainly, ever legal that, that was that was the line from the bank for the credit committee <laughs> one more question um and uh, this managing agent I'm struggling to be too upset with them as someone who likes a bit of entrepreneurship. I, I mean, I guess it didn't do your client any favours, but at the same time, you've got to admire their initiative. So yes um, and no, but at the end of the day, they were they were subletting someone else's property with no formal agreement or any knowledge to the landlord. So uh, it was wrong on on every level possible. I I agree with that and. A as a as a lender myself and as a landlord myself, it would drive me absolutely crazy. But as we've seen this year, one of our clients who had, we had put into receivership had decided uh, had had really given us the runaround, and the the receivers uh, were at, at one point got a phone call from the police uh, to inform them that the property that we had put into receivership and we were hoping to put into auction. Uh, had been used as a as a cannabis den so uh, yeah. which then added a, a little bit of a refurbishment bill on top of uh, what were we, we were already owed um, to uh, uh, to make our task that little bit harder fortunately uh, that has been resolved and uh, and and our loan has been repaid but that was certainly an interesting situation yeah. so that's that's the benefits and beauty of, of property you it's a bit like Forrest Gump. You never know, never know quite what you're going to get. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. okay. So, I heard you on another podcast talking about how you got into your line of business, but 
I'd like you to expand on that. So how did you get into that line of business? How, what did you do before that? And what prompted you to get into mortgage broking and structured finance? Um, so I went to, I always knew I wanted to go into finance. I was obsessed with the stock market. I just found everything about economics really interesting. And I ended up going to the University of Manchester to study finance. And I did two years there and decided university wasn't for me. Uh, I wanted to be self-employed and didn't really see the point of finishing it, uh, rightly or wrongly. But I met a guy there who was graduating that year and we decided to set up a debt management business uh, down in Exeter randomly, but that was where he was from. So we we set up down there. And after a year, I, I just I, I, I found it very, very hard talking to people who were at their darkest point in their lives with debt there were and the, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back was when someone said uh if you can't help me with my debts i'm going to kill myself wow. um, and it, it yeah that was for me that was the i just i couldn't do it anymore it was it was uh you know that's a lot of pressure to put on someone um so i i left that business and came back to surrey which is where i'm from uh, and uh, I was helping my best friend's dad run his horse-drawn carriage business, uh, as well as working for the Surrey Chambers of Commerce. And the lady there, Caroline, who uh, I loved a bit, she was just the most amazing person. She still is. She's, I'm talking like she's not not with. She's still around. <laughs> uh, but she she bless her said, look, Adam, you are awful at this job, but you I think would be really really good at what my my son does or at least the industry he's in and he was a uh, director of uh, a very large uh, network in financial services and uh, he put me into a firm in that network uh, did six interviews for a job that was that had no basic they provided no leads and it was very much a case of is a computer and phone. Well, no, not even a phone. It's a computer. Off you go. Uh, but I was 23. So from my point of view, it was, well, if I'm ever going to take the risk of self-employment where I have no responsibilities other than myself, now's the time to do it. And I think the 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 reason that it was very appealing there was I mean, it was financially motivated. Uh, he showed me what he'd earned in the last month, which was 50k. And I thought, well, <laughs> I could probably learn a few things off this guy. Uh, and I was there for three years. Uh, I then joined a property fund uh, where they were lending 100% to developers. But it, this was right after the crash, so um, not necessarily the right time. But we were all looking for the same things within that business, whereas I was a regulated broker. So I, I could add some value or another income stream to that business, which was obviously anything that was built, I could do the mortgages on. Uh, and that's where I ended up moving to uh, my last firm where I was at for 10 years. But I'd always want, but I've always been self-employed. So, but the name's never been mine above the door. And that's that was the catalyst to setting up Helix, which was having my name above the door and being the captain of my own ship. With well, my business partner who I met 
15, 16 years ago in the first business that I started in mortgages. At. Well, there's something to be said about being your own boss. And in my own circumstances, I've been my own boss now for 11 years. I think I'd like to, well, I certainly know that I'm unemployable. Um, I, I, I take, take this as the compliment that it is. I think you're probably unemployable as well. Uh, these I, days, I, I could not agree more. My, my business partner and I often jest about this, the fact that who the hell would employ us? It, it's uh, th there's lots of reasons why we say that, and I'm sure you're the same. But um, I, I think once you're your own boss, once it's very hard to be. It's hard to go backwards from that. I think, personally speaking, some people are suited. Their personalities are suited to being employees. I think some people struggle with the risk that's attached to it. That yeah. they don't necessarily possess the right character traits to be self-starters and I think you find that there's a lot of people who've tried to get into entrepreneurship in the last 10 years particularly in the tech sector they like the idea of being a founder and entrepreneur but the reality and the, the reality and the idea or image that they don't match up together and so those people very quickly find their way back to employment and yeah. um, I'm I'm really curious about your circumstances when you started out self-employed in the, in the mortgage broking world. Did were you living with your parents, or did you know did you have any sort of safety net, or how did you, you know, th those first two or three months when you were getting started and you had no basic income, how how did you live? How did you make that work? So I, the day I moved to university, my mum put a lodger into my room in the house. So I was. I was I was never going to be living back at my my mum's house after I left, um, so I was uh, where was I I think I don't know I'm not I, I have a feeling I might have been staying at my grandmother's actually, um, but those first few months uh, I worked out roughly what I'd need for a few months and the business said look we'll give you a grand a month for three months uh, and that's that is not we, you don't need to refund that if you hit a certain amount, um, but it is refundable if you leave or you don't hit a certain amount. So there was already a kind of target to hit. So that at least got me into work. That got me into the city uh, and allowed me to at least pay for my bed and board and, and some food for the first few months. Because the thing with mortgages is, it, you know, it does take a lot. It does take a lot of time to pay out. So. Uh, certainly on the residential side where, you know, it can take a few months to get to offer, then completion. And then you have to, some lenders take you know, a month or two to pay you. So there is quite a long, a long time lag for them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I, I completely get that. It sounds like it, it sounds like you've been open to taking risks in your career. And risk has been a really interesting feature of my thought process over the last um, certainly over the last week or so, um, on a personal level, I've, I've been reflecting on my openness to take risk as an entrepreneur and particularly in property development going back 10, 11 years. Some of the things that some of the things that I bought going back in time were incredibly risky. Um, I, I used the example with my wife where we had a, a former territorial army centre near South End where we had when we bought it it was we bought it from a receiver so there are no warranties the building was part fire damaged 
and it had a squatting commercial tenant who was a, a very dodgy guy who was illegally selling caravans and camper vans and i mean the it, it was a, it had no income it was it was definitely not mortgageable i didn't really know about bridging at the time which is ironic thinking about what i do today or certainly the business the business that i co-own and amazingly it it worked out really well we you know we we rocked up one day with a, a bag full of cash handed it over to this chap ashley who was you know squatting there and about 15 months later we ended up selling the building to the local uh, ymca who wanted to set up a free school there but before they set before they bought it they rented it from us so they could and they used the cleared rear, rear of the site um to put in some temporary classrooms and we got a bit of rent uh, during that period so it really worked out but it's really funny because i'd never look at doing something like that today that that level of risk what is your but, but you know what what's you, your you, gone. that was a risk you didn't know was that existed at that point did you because it's I, th I think certainly in property you almost have to do a lot you you, you there's a very harsh learning curve with property, I think, and certainly things like that you, you kind of have to do to to understand the risks fully. If that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. I, I think I think I've always had a reasonably good eye for what what could be put on on the site, but I was much more naive then. I did did a lot less due diligence then than I do now. I think you just had a sense of well, we could probably get some flats on there, and yeah, we'll we'll, yes. we'll just we'll just have a go and see what happens. And these days, uh, I I don't think I'd take that that I, I would certainly not throw caution to the wind in the same way that I did then. Yeah. What's what's your you know? Can you talk people through your your approach and attitude to risk? Because you seem to have, particularly with regards to you know your employment situation you seem to have a very healthy attitude to risk and you a good risk appetite what what is what does that sort of look and mean look like and mean to you uh i think i think saying yes a lot more than no um it is a key factor I, if i look at myself and my business partner we are very yin and yang in that regard he's very he's very risk averse and i'm quite pro risk and that does work very well because i do need i do need that I do need reining in sometimes, uh, but at the same time, you know, businesses can stagnate somewhat if you're not willing to take risk and you're only ever going to perform to a certain level if that risk appetite isn't there. Uh, so I think from certainly from my point of view, growing our business uh, will invariably mean some risk taking and that could be perhaps who we take on or uh, markets that we look at kind of growing into um yeah I, I i'm my view is always it it will probably somewhat naively but i've got a product probably slightly romantic more romantic view of the world than most is that it will it will be all right in the end and and obviously without being silly i mean i've I, thankfully i've got nearly 16 years worth of experience in this this industry so i'm not taking risk without you know fully quantifying it in my head but uh some things will work some things won't but i'm not gonna you know start betting the betting the house on things put it that way yeah i, I think i think that's a a good approach i think a way i might i might put it is that 
in many ways, you could, the the one thing that you'll never get more of is time. Everything else is uh, everything else you can always make back. You can always make money, make exactly. back more money. Yeah. You can't make more time. And I think that the the biggest risk, as way a way I see it, is that I think you're kind of coming up to forty. I've just gone the other side of forty now. I think nothing. Uh, it, forty is a, a very interesting age because, particularly as a man, I think you you start to become much more in focus about um, your mortality. Yeah. But also you're thinking a little bit more about how much time you've got left and then you start to value time very differently in the way that you value time in a much, you know, you 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 almost want time to go past and faster when you're younger, particularly as a child, you know, how many sleeps, how many sleeps to Christmas, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, I think if you take any risk, you need to you need to think right what's the worst case that can happen and will i have any regrets if that is the is is that if that is the outcome mm. and if the answer is i won't have any regrets then then do it yeah absolutely and what i'd add to that is is actually looking at the opportunity cost is actually yeah. like well if i do this what can't i do what is the thing that i can't do as opposed to finding reason you know finding general reasons not to do something yeah um but that attitude that you've got which is you know trying to trying to say yes more yes more times than you say no is for me a, a really strong positive mindset to have you I think um, on, so it's also about accountability to do something so for instance if you've got an idea of doing something whatever that may be the more people you tell that you're going to do something it's harder to not then do it because you're then trying to save face and it's it's a way of forcing yourself to do that thing that you're saying you're going to do. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. But I think a lot of the time people choose not to do things because they're afraid of failing. And I find course, myself, yeah. I find myself doing that a lot of the time. Yeah. I, I'd like to, you know, I, and that's one of the things that I'm now going to be focused on moving forwards, particularly next year is into 2023 is that I'd like to be more open to risk and less afraid of failure and um, and certainly there's a few things that will come along I imagine next year that I will fail at and actually being okay with those things going wrong yeah that if things don't quite go to plan that it's a you bit like you say learn, what's the worst that can happen you can often learn more from a failure than you can from a success and it's almost uh, you know you see all of these other podcasts interviews tv it, it's almost a badge of honor to say that you have failed because you, you the amount that you learn from that failure means that you're unlikely to repeat that and it just makes your chances of success the next time even higher it, again on a very similar theme something that i was talking to a tech founder um last week in, in at a private lunch was around the differences in attitude between Europe slash UK and the US when it comes to failure. In a, it seems like in America, you're not really an entrepreneur unless you failed, unless you you know unless you've uh, unless you've had some sort of failure financially as in, w within a business. It's almost like you need to have those battle scars for you to be taken seriously mm. as a founder. Whereas it, it, in Europe and the UK. If you ever have any failure or anything wrong, it seems to be that that thrown in your face constantly. And it's I, I was it was interesting. We were talking about 
that a lot of people were still highlighting the fact that you know boy george when he got into trouble however long ago and people still go on about it like it's you know like it's the worst thing in the world and he's a terrible person and it's not to condone what he did but it was in the past and the guy sort of did his did his time and all the rest of it in america you know robert downey jr he gets he gets arrested he gets slung in jail what do they do with him they turn him into iron man so you know i think it's just that the it's like it's like life's credit report yeah there can't be any blemishes or you're not going to get what you want whereas that's obviously not how life works no and and i think that it would be interesting to see that a a slightly more open-minded attitude over here around failure and people being more open and willing to fail because i think that that's why for example we talk about and i know neither of us really that involved in the tech world particularly but the reason why people in america are able to just raise so much more money is because investors in america are less afraid of losing money um you know whereas you, i think that you probably have fewer startup failures in in europe and the in the uk because people are more likely to back businesses that have got a half decent chance of being successful. But that's also why so few of the businesses over here end up being unicorns, because actually the, you know, the, the, the sort of, the, there's too much, too much of the opportunity cost is, is rubbed out of these businesses. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about, uh, actually, the, one more thing I wanted to talk, touch on around risk, which was, you you left university after the second year so you were presumably what one year left to go um i can imagine as again as a son of an immigrant you know immigrants often have very very uh great attachment to education uh i can just picture my mother going oh my god he, he he couldn't do one more year at university what's wrong with this man Personally, I don't feel the same way. I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to what, if you were to talk to someone who is, you know, in a similar position or about thinking about going to university or higher education, what, what would you be advising them today? What, what would you be saying to them? Like, listen, Johnny, Jemima, whatever, fill in the blank. You should go to university. It, it's a great experience. You'll have a great time, or do you know what? It's a waste of time, or somewhere in between. Like, what would you, you know, what would you be advising someone around who's thinking about going to university or, or wavering? I think nowadays it's more unusual that someone hasn't gone to university than than has. Uh, certainly in 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 many industries. I think if you're going to go to university, and you there's certain there's certain professions that you definitely need to go to uni for so being a doctor for instance whereas you know if you want to study something that you're interested in that you know that's ultimately that's fine and I think at that age you're you're most no one knows at 18 what they want to be really you know unless you're you do want to be a doctor or an architect and even then some people don't even go through that They, they finish halfway through but if my kids said to me, I don't want to go to uni, I would say, look, at least get your A-levels. But I'd, I wouldn't say uni is the be all and end all these days. Um, I, I mean, I'm very happy with where I've got to. And ultimately, I think where you end up in life is more down to your attitude than what you've got on a bit, on a bit of paper. I, I, look, I think that's entirely right. I completely agree with that sentiment. I think fundamentally, I would encourage 
my kids to go to university because they'll have a really good time and they'll make some really good friends and some and they'll develop a really strong network having been to university twice uh, once at bristol once at reading i've got the benefit of a couple of very good social networks but they yeah. that has also yielded a lot of value from a business perspective and um, i think without that uh, I, there would have been i would have done fewer deals i would probably be a less successful person and really the value has been through the social connections and i've developed more as a, a person a more rounded person as a consequence of going to university but that being said it's not for everyone and I certainly wouldn't push my kids to go if they didn't want to. And I think increasingly the the value the, the there is the value of a formal education is proving harder to uh, to justify. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Um, OK. What's what's the business? Let's let's take it back to business now. Um, what's the biggest challenge you experience as a business owner or a business leader? For us at the moment, it's we're on the tools too much. So, you know, we're a very small business and we're looking to grow. But to grow, we can't be on the tools as much. And being on the tools means that, we, you know, it adds to our turnover. So uh, it's very hard to let go of certain functions in a business, I think, certainly when you've started the business. And I'm sure you went through the same thing uh, with with your businesses where letting go and letting someone else do it is is such a hard thing to do because uh, you have a certain way of doing it and a certain level that you want it done at and that's your your commitment to your business is not going to be the same as someone that you've employed necessarily um, but for us our biggest challenge is looking up and looking at the horizon of how we grow the business rather than the intimate detail of every single deal which we're working on but over time we've got some brokers joining next year so we can slowly start to do that because uh, ultimately I want to be in a stage where we're not a, we're not advising anymore and we're uh, you know it, cultivating more relationships with introducers and making sure that every broker that works with us is as successful as possible. I think what you've just said is a is an absolute priority for anyone who's an entrepreneur that wants to grow a business that's more than a lifestyle business that wants to yeah. grow any business that has some form of enterprise value or that they can grow into something that gives them something of more of a passive income i know a lot of people uh, a lot of people in the in the property world are, are a bit sometimes over lean into the concept of passive income but certainly working on the business rather than in the business is, is an absolute priority but i think you you know you, you sort of touched on it there that you, you've got people joining you my my understanding of people in the finance broking world particularly in the specialist space um as opposed to the more regulated side which is i guess a bit more formulaic and a bit more standardized um is very hard it's very hard to find the right people um and and yeah. my personal experience of these things is that you need the right people to grow a business um how how have you gone about finding those individuals that you're going to have joining the team and um you know did you find it a, a difficult process well the one of the guys who's joining us next year is a, a, a son of a friend of mine who is a broker so they've kind of been a father and son 
team for a few years now, but his dad's semi-retired and he wants to he wants to grow as a broker outside of you know the family business and i've i've kept a very close eye on his his career for some time now and you know we've always got on extremely well and he's very keen to he's keen to join the journey with us um which is exciting i i i i think most people have a a feeling about someone um especially i've known him a while so i i know he'll be a good fit now if it's someone who I've never met before. That's obviously slightly harder to gauge because you've got less information. Um, but it's again, it goes back to that the, the attitude. There's going to be some, there's going to be subliminal information they give me, which tells me whether they've got the right attitude for this line of work. Because ultimately, you're either an employed broker or a self-employed broker. At the moment, we're just looking at self-employed brokers or depending on who that might be for an employed role, they would have to be fairly spectacular because ultimately that's a larger outlay. It's it's a cost to the business, whereas self-employed brokers are obviously less, but they're arguably a little more riskier um, in certain aspects. But it, you're right, it's very hard to gauge and sometimes you're not going to know that till down the line, but it all comes down to attitude. If I know you're a self-starter, and you're saying, well, before I've asked the question where you're going to get your business from, and you've already told me, or for instance, people who want to go on the regulated route that don't have the qualifications, who have said, I've bought all of the course material and I'm working through it now, rather than I want to join, but can you pay for my qualifications? That Both of those say a lot to me. You have to be motivated in this industry. I, I'm just knowing a little bit about about your space do you find that you've got to go for people with a bit with a bit less experience um and train them up is that is that the sort of target that you've got as opposed to for example trying to take someone in on in more of a horizontal move because and it's a bit like it's a bit like um bdms uh, on the sales side for for lend, the lending businesses that uh, that i'm involved with where if 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 they want to come to you, or that you know, or they're willing, too willing to leave their existing employer, it it sort of begs the question: Are they actually any good? And are they leave? Are they leaving because they've they're actually their, their current employer doesn't want them? You know, yeah. flip side: How do you prize someone out who's a top performer that's that's smashing the lights out um, where they currently are? Um, you know, it takes a very specific set of circumstances where you, you know, to get a high performing individual, because if they're really good, their existing employer is going to do everything to keep them. And if they're and if they're not, and the only reason that they're not is because they're not very good. So the, well, you know, if they're high performing, it's also harder to to retain them. And that that comes with its own problems. And also, they're, you know, if they're if they're financially motivated and they are smashing it, well, you're going to have to dangle a fairly big carrot to make it worthwhile, and then, then comes to that of you know if they're if they're a big fish in a small pond in their previous place, uh, you know sometimes an ego might come with that. Uh, uh, we've always taken the view of anyone that joins us, we want it to be the last place they ever work, and obviously not in a sinister way. We want it to be <laughs> seriously. We we want them to be with us till they retire, and we want them to feel fulfilled in every single possible way mentally financially 
work-life balance, career-wise, every single possible way. And, you know, that that comes with its challenges. But I think most of those people will come down to people with probably less experience in this in this world uh, because that comes with less bad habits, um, certain preconceptions of of the space. Um, I've got no issue with someone with no experience joining us as long as they've got the right attitude, because we're, we're very fortunate to be in a business where most people you speak to will probably require your services in one way or another. And what I mean by that is we're very fortunate to have two sides of the business. Not Most brokers are either non-regulated or regulated, and we are very unique in the fact that we can do both and have been doing for you know, 15, 16 years. Both of us, my, my business partner's near 18. So having that length of service on both sides at our ages as well, I think is is quite unique in the market. No, it's, um, I think it's all, all very, all very fair and all very good stuff. Okay, um, in terms of challenges, looking at the next 18 months, obviously we've got, uh, you know, we've got a pretty tricky macroeconomic environment right now. What do you see your biggest threat or biggest challenge in the next 18 months? Well, if we look at the different sectors of property finance, I think the, the most challenging by a country mile is buy to let just because of stress tests and, and rates of where they are at the moment. But with that comes certain opportunities for certainly the more established landlords. So in the situa- situation we're in, we're seeing a lot of hobby and accidental landlords just getting rid of their property. So it's certainly in the southeast where the yields are lower, it's harder to get to the leverage that they want. And they're not willing to put up with the lower cash flow and profit that they'll make on, on their one or two units that they have. So we will see prices drop. We've already seen prices drop in the southeast. So I've got a state agent saying before the mini budget that you know it's been it was down six percent in certain areas at the periphery of London. So with that comes you know less rental stock so rents are going to go up and then you've got the landlords where they're so diversified that cash flow is not the priority it's more capital appreciation so we'll then see two things happen we'll see the market bounce back a bit there but we'll also see yields perhaps creep up a bit um where obviously rents will go up so that, that but then the question is how how long that will take but if you look at things like uh, residential finance, there's still people wanting to buy. That's not gone away. The, the demand certainly softened, but then it's it's turning into a buyer's market rather than a seller's market. So we'll see that one come back. I'm not, you know, people will say, well, five or six percent. How's that going to work? Well, before 2008, that's where base rate was, fives and sixes. It's been like that more longer. It's been like that longer than it has been with the last 10 years of ones and twos so uh, in terms of actual mortgage rates rather than base rates so it's the size it's the seismic psychological shift in the cost of funds that's got everyone so panicked going from 0.1 to three and a half percent in a year that that takes a lot certainly on the residential side for people to get their heads around where their payments have gone up either a few hundred pounds or a few thousand pounds um but then, you know, development side, we're seeing that's become that's come bouncing back because the, the, what I found is the, the, the certainly the press putting such a negative spin on the market has meant that all of these these uh, 
these landowners have suddenly realised that they're not going to get loads of money for their land now. And whilst they've been holding out for the best price, that that ship has sailed. They need to now just they need to take what they can get. So that's suddenly making certain sites work better. Uh, bridging is just booming because rates on bridging sometimes are at parity with term loans, which is is nuts. No one ever thought that would happen. So I think bridging and second charges as well. Second charges have completely different set of rules. So bridging and second charges is a huge, huge, huge market. And 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 I think will be for some time. So you're you're very much looking at these the the sort of next 12, 18 months as, as actually more of an opportunity than than a sort of a threat. Um, I, 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 the thing is, we, we because we're so diversified in the types of property finance that we can offer, there will be some that are very quiet, but there's others that will boom. So I, I, I'm very much a case of seeing that it's an opportunity. It has to be um, in certain types of finance. But we, as I said, we're diversified in that in that regard. Yeah, I think it's obviously important to to understand and identify that within your business and certainly within my lending business for example that it doesn't really matter to us too much whether the the market's going up or down it's probably less of a factor for you than it is for us because obviously we have credit considerations in when house prices are more volatile particularly to the downside but certainly your for both of us we're we're more kind of more focused on the volumetric side of things. Um, I suppose if I was to look at your business, I would say that certainly on the residential side, that will be relatively robust because lots of people who are in, who've got their two year fixes coming to an end in the next 12, 18 months are gonna be picking up the phone to you wanting you to sort out their situations for them. Absolutely. I suppose it's it's more on the commercial and specialist side that it becomes a bit more challenging because I hear what you're saying around landowners um, having to be more realistic about the the prices that they're selling things for. But the the flip side of that is that a lot of those landowners have to have a pressure to sell, and a lot of them, my experience certainly, being involved on the land side as well, is that. A lot of these landowners have little to no debt on the sites and ultimately they want their pound of flesh and they can only sell the site once and they often are not in financially challenged positions where they need liquidity events so you actually find sometimes the stock isn't coming through combined with the fact that the planning system is so completely broken that we have mm. a much reduced number of planning consents coming through and you have builder developers who in lots of cases are minded to buy to buy sites on margins which is artificially supporting prices you know it, yeah. your traditional residual appraisal doesn't necessarily work um i suppose if i was to look at you know I, I think but i think you're right because the anecdotal evidence i'm getting from the the ceo and his team at, at avonmore is that a, a lot of bridging that we seem to be securing now is a function of term loans taking so long to process that yeah. you end that they end up having to come to a bridge and actually because the buy to let term loan is 
is priced the way it is, the bridging cost isn't that much more. And at least with the exactly. bridging cost, they have they have the flexibility that they can repay the loan at any time yeah. without an ERC. So it's 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 going to be a very interesting uh, it's going to be a very interesting period. Uh, I think next year, the first half of next year is going to be very challenging um, across the board. I think the, ha- the housing market is going to be it, it's going to be quite painful. But I think that second half of the year and going into 24, it, things will things will start to look a little bit more rosy. But let's see. Uh, interesting times. So let's let's move on to kind of more personal stuff, uh, if you can. Um, and we will talk about positive habits. And I know you and I have privately talked about some of these things, but what are sort of some of the positive habits you're engaged in that support your lifestyle and your well-being? And give you some examples, you know, meditation, going to the gym, lifting weights, diet. Um, you know, what what are the sort of things that you're that you're engaged in and you do um, that that sort of support you as an individual? Well, none of the things that you just mentioned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to the gym, and uh, my diet could. Uh, certainly do with some major tweaking um i do like to so i i take full advantage of whenever i come into town where you know i might be on the tube and i, I like to i like to listen to podcasts or or watch something on netflix or a bit of escapism i find is very good for the headspace uh as is walking uh, you know I, I, I don't profess to doing hikes in the woods every weekend but where I can walk you know even round the city um, it's a good time to, uh, to mindfulness is is very important um, I could do a lot more physically um, <laughs> uh, but then I've got two small children so time is very important to for me it's more important to spend time with them than uh, than away from them but but at the same time, the longevity side, I need to be able to go to the gym. But I've not quite found that balance yet, being able to to do as much exercise as I would like to. It's a work in progress. Yeah, I mean, I think in in your own way, you 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 try to find that balance. I would say, mm-hmm. um, but I think as as well, it's acknowledging the areas that you need to that that you want to work on, um, and so much of it is about you can't necessarily follow someone else's plan you have to work work things out for yourself yeah exactly i think the key thing you know again i've certainly for the last two three years put a much greater emphasis on you know on diet and on particularly on diet and exercise but then so so much of the thing so many of the things that i think have been contributory to my professional success over the last probably the last six or seven years have been the consequence, you know, were the consequence of a a thirst for knowledge and self improvement, and actually that's probably one area that, if I look at 2023, that I want to improve. Is that that's an area that I I would put, put my own hand up and say, well, do you know what? I probably need to think about re-engaging some of those self improvement habits. You know, I I, mm. I I used to have a incredible streaks on calm where I, you know, once to 210 days straight of of meditation. Um, I mean, a couple of those were cheap days where I'd just log in for about 30 seconds, uh, <laughs> but just to keep the streak going. But at the same time, you know, that I just I did have that commitment and I've certainly lost that, you know, on, on a personal level. And I think that that's something I want to get back back into. And so much of it is about if you want to do it, you'll make the time to do it. 
Um, yeah. But certainly, I think the point in life that you're coming up to now, um, I think that there will be, there will probably be a sort of light bulb moment uh, that will come in for you and you, that will come for you and you'll, you'll think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. But at the same time, I think you need to be kind to yourself and accept that you probably are doing a lot of good things already. And that, um, you know, certainly making time to, making time to spend it with your children is a, is, is in, in itself is a very positive thing. And walking, getting out of fresh air, you know, there are so many studies that show how, how much of a positive influence that is. So I, I, I would say keep doing that. Um, if you, if you would be minded to listen to me, which you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> Okay, what is what's your superpower, um, and why do people want to work with you over others? Uh, stubbornness, stroke, tenacity. If I like a deal, I'm not going to stop until I, I get. I'm not saying that the clients can accept the terms, but <laughs> if I can get a deal to work, I, I'm I'm the guy to do that. I, I if I like a deal, with my experience, I will know if a deal can be funded. And it might not be popular in the market, but I, do, I don't generally stop until I have a solution for someone. And that might be might be not it might not be the the simplest route from A to B, but I can usually make something work. Well, I, I've seen it firsthand, uh, of course, and I, I can vouch for that. But I think also it's a really I, I don't think you can work in finance breaking, frankly, any any aspect of the property market. And not have a degree of uh, degree of tenacity, but I think particularly as a as a as a finance broker, I think you you have to have it in spades because particularly in specialist in the specialist arena, because there, there's always things that that come out of the woodwork, uh, as you described in your earlier example, uh, that you have to that you have to manage. Um, cool. Well, let, let's uh, let's go a little bit. Let's let's go on to a topic that's a little bit um, a little bit different. Which people or past events inspire you and give you the motivation to succeed? Um, good question. Um, I've always been extremely competitive. Uh, just, just from when I was much younger, I, I was I did a lot of swimming uh, competitively, uh, and I, I I hate losing. I've I've always hated losing in any aspect um and that's just been ingrained in me so that's always been something in my past that's kind of filtered through to my adult life i i i, I can take the losses a bit better but i still find them hard um especially if they're something it's something outside of my control even more so if it's in my control but um i wouldn't say there's one past event that's kind of defined that it's just something that i've always had and, and and what about inspirational people? Have there been any people in in your in your life in your career that have that kind of have inspired you and that that have, have um, given you given you something to to kind of take forward in your career? I think my 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 grandmother's probably a, a very good example of that. Um, she was a German Jew and um, ex escaped the Holocaust and. Uh, emigrated here she was in israel first and or yeah moved to moved to the uk she set up her own business here having had nothing um and established a, a life here and was she was uh an interesting woman um 
she, yeah, she scared a lot of people. Um, but I just have the utmost respect for her and what, what her journey in her life. And also my mother, she's never had it particularly easy in, in any stretch of the imagination. And and uh, she's certainly given up a lot for me and my brother to be where we are today. And I think having having respect for people that have given up things to make sure that your your well-being and your future is more important than their own um i think gives you a certain grounding in certain in many respects to appreciate what you have do you feel comfortable just saying a little bit more about about these the, the, these challenges that your mother endured and the sacrifices that she's had to make oh well, she was a single parent so uh and and you know, she was she was working several jobs at any one time, uh, but she managed to get my brother and uh, and I into very very good schools. Uh, my brother on a scholarship, I was on an assisted place, so um, she gave up a lot to make sure that we could pass the exams and and you know make sure that we had food on the table. Um, I know that there were times where that was extremely hard for her to do um and looking back on it now it was probably wasn't as obvious at the time but i know it was a real struggle um so that that's i could i can never be more appreciative of that than you know to, to where i am today for what what my mum did i think you'll find that there's a lot of people have kind of similar stories successful people who are self-motivated and self-started have, have have got that kind of background and certainly it's something that I should to to a to a degree I share that with you as well because my own mother uh was a, a single mother up until the age of till I was two and then she met my stepfather and he essentially raised me as his own but they've certainly you know those first couple of years I think were absolutely terrible for her and then even into my early childhood much like yourself you know my you know, my parents were comfortable, but not particularly wealthy. And yet, and the, the sacrifices that, that were made and the amount of work that had to go into sending me to a good school and giving me a good education and giving me everything I needed um, were, were enormous. So I, I, I can very much relate to you on that level. And I think a lot of people who are, who are listening to this will also have very similar experiences of, of, of parents or a parent, single parent, making a sacrifice to enable them to have a better their children to have a better life uh, yeah. and make better lives themselves a out of interest your grandmother escaping the escaping the holocaust um did was that uh, did what was her journey was it did she come to the did she come to the uk or, or israel before the war started or did she manage to escape during the war how, how did that how did that work she, out she escaped during the war um, I don't know the full circumstances, uh, but she was in Israel for some time and then moved over here. I think she met her husband then. Uh, it's She has written a book. She passed about, I think, eight years ago, but she's written a book, which I haven't read yet, which I feel terrible about. <laughs> um, but uh, she, like her father, I think, was one of the from well one of the founding fathers of israel he he uh went around and fundraised for the state of israel to to create it um and there's one photo that 
I've seen, which just blows my mind, which is a picture of him and a load of others just sat there and in the middle is Albert Einstein. Oh, wow. OK. Um, we're just amazing. I've got that photo somewhere. I'll, 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 uh, I'll WhatsApp it to you when I find it. But um, yeah, there's it, her journey. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of blanks. And, and I think, you know, when I should have asked a lot more questions than I did. Um, and that that is a regret. I, I think that that's a. I think that's quite common. You know, I, I, I have, uh, you know, s- some similarities within my family story to yours, um, although although also quite different. And I think that when you're a teenager and in, in your in, and in your early, early 20s and when, you know, when you have that opportunity to actually engage with them and ask the questions, you're not interested. Um, but I think also the flip side, there's also an element of them. I think they want to block out some of it, uh, some of it, too. And I'm quite fortunate that I've got a cousin, Jan, who's um, who's like a sort of family historian and he's done a lot of work around the family tree. And and uh, we actually did a sort of discovery, a, a journey of discovery in Poland last year uh, or sorry, this year, this this past July. And we went to see the the, the sort of shtetl where my grandmother's uh, grandfather's family are from. Um, and it's um you know and so that was very interesting and we saw all the places where the, the family farm and you know you had that opportunity to connect with it but if it'd been left to me i a lot of this knowledge and the, these experiences would have been lost so i'm yeah. i'm actually very grateful to to my cousin for um you know for, for being the one that's that's made all the effort to, to keep the records and he interviewed my grandfather whilst my grandfather's still alive he's he's been gone now for 14 years so um you know that that sort of uh, that, that sort of oral history uh, was has been passed down, but it, you you don't always have the opportunity to to keep these things, and it's you can't be too harsh on yourself for not having asked the questions. In my in my opinion, because I think you you you're asking uh, expecting a you know a teenage or teenage boy or a young man who who has shall we say different motivations to focus on things that are perhaps a bit more mature is um is perhaps a bit unrealistic so um, well, yeah, that, don't be too hard on yourself you, you don't know what you've got till it's gone unfortunately well, that, that that's <laughs> that's that's absolutely right um okay so nice a, a nice kind of red pill blue pill question for you now if you had to choose between being given all the knowledge and experience you have now but aged 10 or 25 million pounds aged 25 which option would you choose and why? 10 every day of the week because you can't get time back. No one can. That's that's the one commodity no one has control over. So I, I you could pay me a billion pounds uh, to be, you know, 45, 50. OK, that, that may be that may be my number. Uh, but no, being 10 years old. And actually, I did, I did listen to your other podcast with DZ, and I know he he went the other way and explained that, and it was a good take. I'd never considered it about uh, losing innocence at ten, but I would I would prefer I don't mind I wouldn't have minded that, and to a large degree I didn't I, 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 that innocence was lost quite quite young for me anyway in terms of you know my 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 upbringing. So uh, I take the knowledge. I, you've got all that time hopefully to establish something quite amazing. And also, I, it's my innocence to lose. It's not like I'm saying that my kids are not going to have that. And I, I, th- I think that's a a, a a decent enough price to pay for time. 
I, 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 I would agree with you. Um, I think, again, I think you and I probably uh, we've probably got quite we've got quite similar backgrounds. Uh, I think anyway, um, and I would agree that age ten probably wasn't that innocent. Uh, I was certainly naive and stupid, but uh, I, I wasn't that innocent. So uh, it wasn't that innocent. So in in that respect, I think I, I would agree with that. Um, but I did really enjoy DZ's take, and um, you know, for yeah, those who I've the, never considered that angle at all, so that was uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually I thought it was actually it was a really well put point. So I recommend it to to those who are listening to this if they haven't listened to my conversation with Dimitri uh, Zabjala, um to to listen to that and particularly that element of it because it, it was a very interesting take on this particular question. Um, but Adam, I think I, I'm I'm in the same camp as you. I'd want the, I'd want the knowledge because you know we're, we're we only have so much time to to learn these things, and also the more knowledge you have, the more ability you have to apply that um, earlier. Um, tell me something. What is something that you believe that other people is insane? You know, do do you you know do you have a th a thought or belief that other people think is crazy? Uh, well, a lot. Lots of people would would think it's insane. Lots wouldn't, but I I do believe in in aliens and ghosts. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I th please I, please I, elaborate. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think the universe is too big to to be arrogant enough to think that we are on our own. And there's lots of uh, mainstream uh, uh, scientists that think that that this, it would be absurd to think that there is an intelligent life form and. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, evidence out there that would demonstrate that no one can explain certain things that are happening in the skies and in the seas that would they're just completely unexplained that defy the laws of physics as we know it. So, uh, but ghosts, I think I've 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 had some supernatural experiences. So I, I'm I'm a firm believer in, in on that side of things, which I think you know lots of people would think is absolutely nuts. But um, I, I yeah, I personally, I, I I think that there is some element of truth to. There's I mean we we'd be we'd be crazy to think that all things are explainable. You know I think that um, the aliens part I definitely would agree with you on. Um, I, I think that when you have that many planets and you know you think that the conditions you think you think that the conditions that we have on earth and you know the, the the four billion years of development that have got us to where we are right now we think that that would only happen on this this rock flying around this particular star uh, and that wouldn't be replicated in the you know the the billions of other solar systems all around the all around the universe is um you know it's pretty fanciful the counter narrative on ghosts i'm not sure i'm sold on the ghosts thing um i certainly can get spooked out by certain scary movies um but i don't know i'm not sure um i'm not sure you know having also had the benefit of um you know, a, a catholic education um you know talk about the holy spirit and and all the rest of it um you, you know that there's there's perhaps a degree of indoctrination that that leads me to believe that maybe that there is some some element of truth to that but i i'm not sure i'm not sure i can buy into that but do you know what i think it's fun that i think it's quite fun that you you think that they can exist and uh i'm looking forward to I, chatting that was, chatting that through over a pint sometime i was as a kid i was obsessed with it in fact my 
the first job I ever wanted to do, where most people say a police officer or, you know, fireman or doctor or nurse or whatever, or astronaut, uh, I wanted to be a paranormal psychologist. Is it... Is it then safe to say that your favourite movie, being an 80s child like me, your favourite movies growing up were the Ghostbusters movies? I mean, that, they were definitely up there. I mean, that, yeah. that that was a bit of a stretch in terms of what, what happened in those films. But yeah. <laughs> did you have a favourite favourite character from the from from the movies? Uh, probably Slimer. <laughs> Slimer. <laughs> OK. We just talked about things that... Uh, people think is uh, insane, the things that you believe in. Um, what are some common misconceptions around you? You know, what, what would you say those might be? Um, maybe, the, maybe the amount of confidence I have. I think uh, there's, I do have a, a, an element of imposter syndrome sometimes. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, Michael, being sat here and asked, asked by you to do this, I'm wondering why of all people you've asked me. So I, I thank you for that. I'm incredibly flattered. No idea why. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, some people might think that uh, I'd, I've got a lot more confidence than than I perhaps do. I think that that's, um, I think that's quite a common trait. And I'd say, again, it's probably another thing that you and I share. Um, I think ultimately the, you know, People will probably find this will be surprised to hear this, but I'm actually quite a shy person um, outside of a space, more professional settings. Um, and I think some people, as quite common, would um, would mistake that shyness for rudeness. Um, whereas I just, you know, I'm just feel very uncomfortable and awkward in a lot of social uh, social situations. Uh, not all, but um, you know, I have to feel very comfortable and and feel safe to really to really lean into that so you know I, I can I can really identify with that as for why you know why you um I think first and foremost having known you for a while you're a very interesting person and you know you've got you've got a lot to say and I think a lot about why why I want to do this podcast is to have conversations with interesting people but also give voices to to, to those interesting people that maybe are not at the top of uh, at, at the top of the, the you know the podcasters list of uh, of guests because they're not as high profile and actually to give to give a platform to some of those people you know the give a platform to the little guy if you know what I mean not to say that you're a little guy but um you know it's a I guess the proverbial little guy and yeah they're they're I, I I'm certainly open to having you know some of your uh larger more well-known peers uh come on and speak to me because again they too have got interesting stories but i think every, the i think the key point is everyone has a story everyone has value to give to the world in terms of their the way that they approach things and the way that they think and as a consequence of that for me you know you, i'm very very pleased delighted and excited that you've come on so and I've and I you know really what appreciate it. Thank you. well I think the important thing as well is that we we've had you know I think we've had a very interesting conversation so far and we've we've got yeah. you know we've certainly got a few more minutes to go anyway but you know from that perspective from a selfish perspective I've enjoyed this I've enjoyed this process and so as much as anything else it's about having conversations with people that you 
individually enjoy speaking to and that ultimately I haven't started I haven't started this podcast to make money to gain followers to gain profile it's for me it's a lot of it is about scratching an itch and having interesting conversations and focusing on the process and if but and if if doing so yields followers and interest and sponsors and all the rest of it then then that's great but that's not really why I'm doing it and so you know in many ways you're the epitome of of why this podcast is here to exist, which is to have interesting conversations, regardless of of, of status and, and identity. Okay, great. So um, let's talk about personal values. Um, what do you what would you say are your key personal values, both for business and life more generally, that you value above others? Uh. I, I think it's about uh, having fun, isn't it? Uh, enjoying what you do, making sure that you know no one gets hurt along the way. Uh, if everyone goes away happy and fulfilled, and they've got what they want, then that's that to me is successful. Um, whether that's a client, a coworker, or anyone that I engage with, I, I just I, I'm. I'm all, I'm all about being fair and and open and 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 uh, transparent and just having fun. I don't I don't think we should take life too seriously. I, I like I like that um, emphasis on fun. And I was listening to Diary of a CEO uh, with Steve Bartlett last week, and he interviewed uh, a lady called Barbara Corcoran, and she established a. Uh, probably one of the most successful realtor businesses in I, I I can say at least New York, but I think it's more kind of uh, more US wide Corcoran group. And the one thing that she really focused on in terms of was having fun. It's like, let's have fun. Uh, and of course, I'm sure that they were incredibly professional in how they went about things. But I think if you're having fun, you're going to you're more likely to want to do things and engage in things and it and yeah and and you're going to throw your heart and soul into things much more if you're having fun than if you're than if something feels like a drudge so that is quite interesting that it's quite interesting that you know i I wouldn't say that that's of of all of your values that that's the most important but it's one that really sticks out to me at the moment as being quite topical um cool bit more bit more of a personal question now um outside of work how do you like to spend your time? You talked about you talked about your children. Um, what you know, but you know, you're obviously spending time with them, but spending time with your wife. What what are the various things that you like to do when you're not working? Uh, well, yeah, obviously, yeah, time with my family is is the most paramount. But uh, spending time with friends, I like playing golf. I love shooting, um, and traveling as well. That travel has always been a very big part of my life not so much in the last few years for a number of reasons with covid and having children but um by 18 i'd i'd been to six continents i've traveled to over 50 uh, it's always been so important for me for just enriches the soul it's and it's uh it, it is a bit of escapism it is also fun as well uh but that that would i would say is is one of the larger ones but yeah hobby wise but golf terribly but i enjoy the walk and the banter and being in some scenic places and yeah i love i've yeah love love shooting as well one of my friends 
uh, one of my friends, a guy called Conrad, he, he was a pretty good golfer in his, in his earlier days. He actually has used golf as a way of spending time with his son. So his son, his son's, his son's the same age as, uh, as my middle son, Josh, and they play, you know, they play golf together and it's a great, it creates a great opportunity for them, to, you know, uh, his son Charles is very into golf, and I think it's a great opportunity for for them to to bond and uh, yeah. get out out in fresh air. So certainly, I won. Uh, personally, I hate golf. Uh, although I could play actually once to eighteen, but I just think it's uh, I I just it's not good for my mental state. Uh, <laughs> but but if it's something you enjoy, uh, you, it's probably a great op- a great opportunity for you to be able to spend time with your kids. And I guess uh, not not just your son, but also uh, but but also your daughter. Uh, yeah. You know, we've got to be inclusive these days. Um, in terms of travel, was there is there any is there any one place that you would say was like just blew your mind that if you could go if you could be transported there tomorrow or or today in a in a, in a click of the fingers you'd you'd give anything to go back to? Um, Malaysia is my favourite place in the world. Uh, but there's other there's other trips that I've done that really stick in my mind. So I went to Bolivia for five weeks on a school trip. That was incredible. Uh, I done I did the Trans Siberian Express from Russia to uh, Beijing via Mongolia. Wow. Um, I've been to Jordan a few times and been to the Treasury at Petra uh, and what stayed with the Bedouin and Wadi Rum. Um, so some slightly different trips, but. It just just incredible cuba as well that was a, i've been there a few times that, that that's been an, an an incredible place as well well michael palin eat your heart out i mean wow <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's quite the list of travel destinations um i mean looking at your hobbies and your kind of personal interests um have you learned anything from them that you can apply in your business life anything in particular um i just being mindful of where, where you know everyone goes through their own personal struggles and it's not always apparent or obvious and it's it's just being mindful that you know the way someone reacts might not be perhaps from malice it might be something that is going on behind the scenes so to maybe not jump to conclusions about someone's perhaps mental state or what they're going through and whether that you know that whether that's through a hobby or travel or that that's just you know that's life isn't it it's just being you never know what someone's going through and I I think more you know mindfulness and mental health is uh, something which is thankfully um, very much I say a buzzword now it should have always been but it's it's more accepting um, I think that's that's something that through uh, not necessarily hobbies it's just it's life at the moment it's um people go through their own struggles and I I think it's just being more mindful of that I think that's a really I think it's a really interesting conclusion that you've drawn there um my performance coach Lloyd he um one of the things he's been trying to teach me over the five years that we've been working together is is to try to ask questions of of, of people you know to to apply a, a sort of coaching mindset to how i engage with people whether that's you know employees or suppliers or or whatever and one of those th- one of those questions is is to say 
you know what are you experiencing you know it's it's it someone might if someone might rea be reactive or, or be a bit short with you and say okay fine what's okay fine rather than reacting back to them say okay what's what's going on here what are you experiencing tell me what tell me what you want or need um mm. and i think that you know and, and i think that it's it's sort of an extension of of what of what you've just said which is to to try and put yourself in that other person's shoes and try to understand what they're going through because it might you know that what someone is is showing you outwardly isn't necessarily a reflection of what's going going on inwardly and you know if i'm let's say short being short with my children it's not because it's not necessarily because of what they're doing it's yeah. because something else is giving me anxiety yeah that that that, that means that i transfer that anxiety onto them in some manner um and you you know and and they'll be numerous examples of that i imagine that you'll you'll see and i'll see and and, and any listener will hear or see in their daily lives um cool so just coming down to the last last couple of questions now um what business or life hack could you share with our listeners in 90 seconds or less uh managing people's expectations i, I think if you can master that you can do anything it, it's for me that is the absolute paramount thing that you can do is manage people's expectations, good or bad. Don't be afraid to tell someone bad news, but if you're gonna give them bad news, make sure you have a solution to that as well. Uh, but for me, it's it seems like the most obvious, simplest thing to do, but 90% of people, certainly in this industry, just can't do it. I think, genuinely, I think that's a very, very good piece of advice. You know, being able to, you know, it's that under promise, over deliver. Um, so much of how people, uh, people's perceptions of you are much more important than the reality. And two people can, can effectively deliver the same thing. But people remember, you know, people don't really remember what you tell them or what you've done for them. You remember that people remember how you made them how you make them feel yeah and so managing expectations and doing that and 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 over delivering and when you under promise um will, will generally leave people feeling so much more positively about you and so much better about you than if you you know than if you go the other way um so from that perspective i think that's a really great piece of advice um and then last question what book would you recommend to listeners that has had a profound impact on your life and that you you know you would routinely gift or or, or suggest to people uh i mean there's three that i i, I really like uh and one is uh sun Tzu, the art of war um obviously that's not just about war it's just you know strategy etc in in general life and that could be transported to many many different things uh, free economics it made me look at the world very differently and and kind of understand the the reasons for things happening but uh the big one for me actually was the secret uh Rhonda Byrne um which is uh, is effectively if you if you positively think about something or put it out into the universe it will happen to you and it's not so much you know I want to you know 10 million pound check and it arrives that's that's not obviously how it works it's 
if you can visualize or positively think about something um, subconsciously the universe gives it to you um, obviously a little more you know it's, it's a, a bit more involved than that but you know if you look at why bad things happen to negative people it's it's the same premise the other way um, and I'm I'm ve I'm a very positive person um, so I, I I like to have a positive mindset about most things I mean people can tell when I'm having a bad day uh, we all have them but I I, I'm, <laughs> I can go uh, the other way quite quite badly but um, there's a reason why negative people always say, oh, why does this happen to me? Uh, thank you for thank you for the explanation about the secret. Um, the the first two, the first two books I've, I've actually read myself. Um, and yeah, I, I particularly enjoyed for economics, it just just for entertainment value as much as anything else. Yeah, my one of one of the. Uh, one of the chapters that stood out was why basically why 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 a drug dealer is so poor um so that that yeah. was that was quite a quite a fun one um as far as the secret goes now i haven't read that one yet but it, i've heard a lot about it um that point around manifestation um you know kind of if you if 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 you believe it it will happen um i think the reality of that is just believing something doesn't mean it will automatically happen, but you're certainly, you know, you, it's about having a positive and open mindset to, a, to, to having a positive experience as opposed to having a kind of closed mindset, because I guess if you're closed off to something invariably it doesn't, you know, you're not, it's not going to have a chance of happening at least. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's, that's great. That's really interesting. Um, I think we've probably run out of time. So I'm I'm really appreciative of of, of everything uh, that Likewise, we've done here today. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so, Adam Adam Styles, thank you very much. Uh, very much appreciate your time. Uh, also, I'd like to I also like to have acknowledgement for Georgia Ashley, who's the this podcast producer. So thanks to to Georgia, and thanks to you, our listeners and viewers, for listening or watching. And we will catch you on the next one. Thank you and goodbye. A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.